Love you. Thanks. Thanks, guys. It's great to see you. That's really kind, not necessary, but thank you. Um, man, I love you guys. It's so good being here. I was on sabbatical for 12 weeks, and that's just the thing that we ask all of our pastors to do, to just make sure every seven years they take a break and just focus on Jesus and family. It was amazing. So thank you for letting me do that. We had a blast. It was really a deep time with my family. We enjoyed each other like crazy. Uh, and one of my favorite things on sabbatical was just getting to worship in frontline congregations. So I got to attend church here twice at Frontline South, and it was amazing. I just kept thinking, like, I love that I get to be one of the pastors in our church, but I would be thrilled to just be a member in this church. It's amazing. So thank you guys for the way that you love each other and take care of each other. Like, getting to be here with Hillary leading worship is so good for my soul. Like, that song that you wrote, I don't know, which, which number was that in I Need Jesus? Like, two weeks ago, I was feeling really depressed, and that was on repeat for, like, eight hours in my house. And I just felt so much grace and so much love. So thanks for all you do. I just love you guys. All right? I want to just like get everybody in this room a hug and a kiss. And that would be weird and awkward. I am kind of like your crazy uncle that you don't remember. And we show up at family reunions from time to time. And it's weirder for you than it is for me. Okay? <laughs> so I'm excited to be here. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray for you guys. You pray for me, and we're going to get into God's Word. And just an upfront warning, this is a hard one today. This is not the sermon I wanted to step back from sabbatical and bring. This is a difficult one, right? It's really timely. It's really important. And my request is that you just stay with us to the end. Imagine this sermon being public transportation in a city you don't know, and you want to make sure you get off at the last stop. Right? If you get off at the wrong stop in this sermon, you're going to be in a bad neighborhood and you're probably going to get mugged. Right? So track with me, man. Stay with me to the end and keep your heart open and, and let's see if maybe the Lord will do something really deep and beautiful in us. Sound good? All right. Let's pray. Um, Father, we confess that we are masterful at evading Jesus, his claims on our life, his beautiful and awesome teaching. Lord, we just want to confess today that we're really good at like doing the, the matrix backbends and avoiding who Jesus really is as Lord. And I just pray today that where we, where we want to fight with you, I pray that you would give us grace today to lose. Lord, where we're resisting you, give us grace to surrender. Lord, we really do believe that what you have for us is more beautiful, deep, and joyful than what we can have apart from you, but it's so easy to forget that, so will you help us today? Would you give me grace to serve my friends and open up our hearts to you? And Jesus, this is all about you, so be lifted up, we pray. In the name of Jesus, everybody said, amen. All right, my friends, if you got a Bible, you can go to Ephesians chapter 2. That's going to be our anchor text, but we're going to dance around a lot of New Testament scripture today, so just track with me. If you're new to your Bible, don't feel like you got to turn to all these passages. You can write them down and fact check me later. I think that would be a good idea. All right, here's what I want to start with. I want to read you the beginning three sentences that started a really difficult wrestle in my heart during sabbatical. We'll read you some troubling sentences, all right? Troubling sentences. Here's the first three. Let's get something straight right from the beginning. If you don't act like a Christian, you are not a Christian. Yes, I'm willing to die on that hill. Right, what do you think about that statement? 
because it sounds really legalistic. It sounds like kind of old school, joyless, works religion, right? I don't know about you, but I have a mental picture when I read those three sentences of the guy that wrote this just being a really bitter old codger sucking on lemons and watching Kirk Cameron movies, yelling at kids on skateboards. This just does not sound like the kind of grace-saturated, gospel-centered, Jesus-loving type of Christianity that I want to be a part of. But let me read the rest of the paragraph, and let's wrestle with this a little bit. He goes on and he says this, there's no such thing as an identity, pay special attention to that word, an identity that does not act. If you do not treat people, especially spouses and other family members, from and with Christian virtues, there is serious doubt that you are a Christian. And no, I don't believe in salvation by works. But I do know that faith involves attachment to and participation with Christ. And if that is the case, you can't be attached to Christ without acting in accord with his character to some large extent. Identity informs behavior, or identity and action are connected. So what do you think about that? How does that sit with you? Because it's kind of like a bracing statement, isn't it? It feels a bit like a cold shower. I don't know whether to go with that or to resist that. I don't know if I want to mark through that with a Sharpie so I can't read it or highlight it. It's It's a troubling statement. Identity and action, identity and action, he's arguing, are deeply connected. So let's do a thought experiment to try to lead us into our text today. Here's the thought experiment. Imagine that my wife comes up to you on a Sunday morning. She's got tears in her eye and she says, hey, Josh and I need marriage counseling right now and we need your help. Can we come to your house this week for you to guide us and lead us and counsel us? And you being the amazing marriage counselor that you are, you're like, yes, that is actually my hobby. I love doing marriage counseling. We show up to your house and the first sign that things are gonna go really well is my I Heart Nancy t-shirt. Right? You're like, okay, maybe they don't have problems. He's got a I love my wife coffee mug, a I heart Nancy t-shirt. And then I open my mouth and I begin our counseling appointment by telling you, I don't think we need to be here because I'm crazy about my wife. I love her. She's amazing. She's the best thing that ever happened to me. In fact, not only do I love her, but I tell her twice a day that I love her, every day. She wakes up in the morning, I lean over with that amazing morning breath and I say, I love you. I love you, right? And every night before we go to bed, I kiss her on the cheek and I say, I love you. And you're like, wow, that's amazing. Nancy might be high maintenance. She might be making something up. But then it's her turn to talk. And imagine what she tells you is, yeah, it's true. He tells me that he loves me all the time. But here's what you need to know. Here's the data that will inform how you counsel us. He never treats me with gentleness. He doesn't want to spend time with me. He's critical and he's harsh and he bullies me. I don't feel safe around him. And in addition to all that, there's nights where he is out with other women and he doesn't come back until the morning. So what do you do in that counseling moment, right? Do you you lean towards my verbal affirmation of devotion to Nancy being sufficient and rebuke her for being high maintenance? 
Or do you do what I hope you would do? Do you grab me by the collar and look me in the eye and say, you are claiming to love your wife with the words of your mouth, but identity as a loving husband is not found in your marriage. You actually don't love her. There's no fruit of love. There's no evidence of love. In fact, the evidence in your life is contrary to that of devotion. See, here's the point I'm trying to make. Here's the point I'm trying to make. We're in a really weird cultural moment as Midwesterners that are trying to wrestle with the claims of Jesus. And in our really weird, fascinating cultural moment, we have, maybe for the first time in history, believed that we can be people who divorce our identity from our action. We're people, we're people who think that We can claim devotion and obedience to Jesus, claim saving faith in Jesus, and have no evidence or no fruit to back up those claims. This cultural moment is really dangerous. It's really dangerous. So here's the big idea with today's sermon. Here's what I'm going to try to do with you in the text of Scripture. I want to try to show you that identity, the essence of who you are, identity, forms and directs and shapes behavior. I want to show you that true Christian belief is a unified whole. It's a unified whole. Faith includes both truth that renews your mind and beauty that reshapes your affections or your desires. And true saving faith also has obedience that reforms your behavior. Now I want to stay up front and we're going to get into the details. This is not a sermon. This is not a sermon about you being perfect in this life. But this is a sermon where I think that the weight of scriptural evidence points to a connection between your identity in Jesus and a life of imperfect and often difficult, falling short at times, but nonetheless commitment to obedience in actually following Jesus. Identity informs behavior. So here's the challenge that we have right now. There's two kinds of belief that are really popular that don't look like actual faith in Jesus. The first is mere mental belief, just mental belief. Like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Why? Well, uh, my mom was a Methodist. Okay, can you tell me more about that? Well, yeah, I believe in the God of the Bible. I believe in this thing called the Trinity. I even believe in the historic Jesus. I believe in his death and his resurrection. I'm good. I check all the belief boxes. Here's the problem, though. Here's where we get into some danger. The book of James says this. James chapter 2, verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Here's what he's saying. Like mere mental assent to a list of doctrinal truths is not sufficient for saving faith. Now, saving faith is not less than believing in the actual God that's communicated himself to us in Jesus, right? Like, you can't not have any sort of doctrinal reality and be a Christian. There's truth to Christianity. There's substance. There's content. But listen, you can have a lot in common with the devil in what you believe. Because Satan's like, yeah, I believe in the resurrection. (laughs) 
I believe in the triune God. I just don't love him, worship him, or obey him. I believe, I believe that Jesus' blood is sufficient to cleanse people of their sins if they'll put their faith in him, but I'm not going to bow my knee to him. I'm opposed to him from the very core of my being. So, like, listen, I know that this is so far, like, not a fun lead-in to brunch. Right? I get that. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to take your salvation from you. I'm just trying to say mental belief is not the same as saving faith in Jesus. Now, there's another way that we can go, and that's not the intellectual route. That's just the sentimental route, right? That's like, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. There was a moment where I felt really overwhelmed in an awesome worship service, and I invited Jesus into my heart. Right? Or I went to youth camp and there was this great moment where the band played the keys and the lights were down and I walked an aisle because I really felt something big, but there's a danger in that sentimental faith. Let me read to you from the words of Jesus. By the way, if you really read the words of Jesus, he says a lot of disturbing stuff. True story. We're about to do the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start that in a few weeks. And it's like really hard to read. Here's the words of Jesus. Luke chapter 8 verse 13. The ones on the rock, he's telling this parable about sowing seed, right? And the seed's the gospel, and some of this gospel seed falls on rocky soil. That's the context. He says the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. The gospel sounds awesome. Hell sounds like a terrible place to go. Wow this is really great news that you're telling me. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing, pain, life, suffering, loss, anxiety, depression. In a time of testing, they fall away. And as for those that fell among the thorns, these are those who hear but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and their fruit does not mature. But as for that, in the good soil, there are those who hear, and upon hearing the word, they hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and they bear fruit with patience. Okay, here's the argument. Here's the premise of everything we're talking about today. I'm going to get into the beauty of being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but I want you to see that when you become a Christian, the fundamental identity of who you are is changed. The essence of who you are is different. The definition of who you are is new, and throughout all of Scripture, the idea that your works can save you is blown up, blasted to smithereens, but also the idea that you can have an identity that doesn't show up in your relationships, in, in your checkbook, in your sexual expression, is completely foreign to biblical Christianity. Identity informs action. Identity informs action. So take your Bible, look at this. This is Ephesians chapter 2. There's so many great verses in the Bible. This is just one of those that in some ways is the crown jewel of everything we believe as Christians. Listen to the good news. Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace. Grace is often described as unmerited favor. Another way to put it would be 
the experience of the love of God in Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the crown jewel of the Christian faith. It's grace. Grace is amazing. Here's what we believe, and it's what the whole Bible is pointing to. It's what the whole Bible's about. There is a God that created you. You were made for communion with that God. You were made to find your deepest satisfaction, not in his creation, which is a gift, but in your creator, who is alone to be worshiped and adored and obeyed. And all of us from jump are bent and twisted where we're blind to him and hostile to him and we just want the stuff that he's made. We all have that in common in this room. And not because we figured it out or got the formula right or because we cleaned ourselves up or because we were born into the right family or any other reason that could lead to any kind of claiming that you contributed to your salvation. Just because God is love, he straight up came after you in Jesus. Pursued you, kicked down your defenses, lavished his love on you, took people who were his enemies and made them his family, gave you the delight he has in Jesus to you. The way that he loves the unique only begotten son, that's now how the father loves you in Jesus. It's called adoption. It's amazing. Removes your sin forgives your sin past, present, and future through the cross, this is a grace. And notice it says, we're his workmanship. You didn't do this. This is why, this is why a prideful Christian is the greatest oxymoron in the history of the world. Christians should be the most humble people on the planet because we're people that believe in grace, not works, to get to God. God came to us. This means God gets all the credit, he gets all the praise, the work is God's. It's a gift we receive. It means that grace is offered to both religious people trying to be so good that they don't need Jesus and irreligious people that are trying to be free to be their own God. The good news of grace comes to all people and says, hey, here's a gift. Will you just open up your hands and receive it? Trust in Jesus. Here's the point. Here's the point. If you mess with grace, you mess with the very heart of what it is to be a Christian and you'll become a legalist, or you'll become a completely depressed and miserable human being thinking that you somehow got into relationship with God and now it's all up to you to stay in relationship with God. Grace is amazing. Listen, we believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but look at me, you can't stop there because yes, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but grace never stays alone. The root of grace always, and not necessarily quickly, and not without difficulty, and not without moments of backsliding and sin, and all kinds of things that we wish weren't true, if there's a root of grace there's going to be a measure of fruit that looks like working out your identity in obedience to Jesus.
And this is the message of Scripture all over the New Testament. Grace doesn't stay alone. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not because we got into relationship with God in our good deeds, but because grace has power to change you from the inside out. And if there's no change happening, then you have to wonder if your identity's shifted. So, let me read you some scriptures, okay? Let me read you some scriptures. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Is Jesus opposed to grace? No, Jesus Jesus is the embodiment of grace. It's his life in our place. It's his death for us that means we can be Christians. But Jesus is pointing out a truth that's connected to grace. If your identity's been changed, there's gotta be some fruit. Again, in John 14, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If you love me, you care about my commandments. If you love me, Christianity is not a choose-your-own-adventure book. Like, here's something that Scripture teaches that I don't like, so I'll avoid it or just sort of write that out of orthodoxy. I, I like all the stuff about Jesus and his love, I don't like that forgive your enemies business. Am I the only one that doesn't like that bit? Like, I'm not wired to love my enemies. All the sports I like include people bleeding. Right? I, I don't like that bit about forgiving people from our hearts. Because I feel justified in holding on to some of my bitterness towards people that have hurt me. Jesus is saying, listen, your love that you have for me is not a sentimental love that's just a feeling. Your love is gonna work its way out in imperfect, but nonetheless growing submission to Jesus as Lord. I'll read you just a couple more as if that's not enough to really bum you out. Let me read you a few more. Jesus says, John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I, as lo I, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Identity is gonna create action. Not sentimental love for each other, Jesus-like love, which looks like sacrifice. And here's an identity text, if ever there was one. Colossians 3, Paul writes, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. This is all about old identity and action. Old identity and action. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. You were doing these things because that was coming out of your identity. You did dark dirt because you were dark. He goes on to say, but now you must put them all away Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed 
in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here's what he's saying. You have this old identity, you walked in it, you've been given this new identity through grace, and you're to walk in it. You're to put off the old and put on the new. First Peter chapter two, he writes this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable that they may speak against you, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Listen, we're in this weird cultural moment where especially in Oklahoma City and Norman, the difference in lifestyle between a Christian and a non-Christian has become so enmeshed and non-different, there's no distinction. And we kind of think in this moment, like the way for people to become Christians is being super cool and talking them into how cool it is to follow Jesus. Let me ask you to do one more thought experiment. Which would be more effective in OKC in seeing people come to faith? If we did a crusade and made it super cool, had Andrew Burkhart literally jump a motorcycle over the stage while smoke's coming out, Hillary shredding on a solo. <laughs> Sean Evans stands up to preach with really cool tight jeans on. His shirt buttoned down to about right here so you can see that manly scar he got. And then we do a little talk. Isn't Jesus awesome? Come follow Jesus. Raise your hand. Or, or hypothetically, would it be more evangelistically fruitful if single people that follow Jesus walked in chastity where men treated women like sisters in the Lord in purity and in honor. I'm not trying to be dramatic here. I'm just saying, what would people on the campus of OU think if they saw these Christians relating to each other, men and women, not in a predatory way or in a way that looks like objectification or in a way where the women are somehow threatened by the guys, but where men and women treated each other like brothers and sisters and loved each other <laughs> and were not expressing their sexual desires physically with another person until they were in the covenant of marriage. Like that would just blow minds in our city. That's what scripture teaches that the kind of identity that we have in Jesus is to be lived out in the world. Like when the Bible says, be ready to tell the Gentiles, non-Christians, about the hope within you, it's assuming they're asking. <laughs> and that old saying, preach the gospel at all times, that if necessary, use words, which is wrongly attributed to, I think, St. Francis. Like, that's a terrible saying, right? It's kind of terrible because the gospel has content. We want to tell people that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead, but it's also kind of on to something that matters, which is like, if the way we deal with money and sex and people that are poor and hurting, if that doesn't look different than the world, then why are they gonna ask about the hope within us? If we live like the end of this world is money and security like everybody else in the world, that we don't look any different. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about godly women 
And he's like, how do godly women adorn themselves? And I don't think this text is saying that it's sinful to wear like jewelry or anything, but I think the point that Paul's making is in the Roman Empire, if you were a woman of wealth, you would display it with what you wore. And what he says is, you know how women of God adorn themselves? With good works. And in the early church, some of the growth came directly from women the way they followed Jesus like crazy in the marketplace with dignity and respect and courage. So this sounds difficult. This sounds trying. What about the guys that love grace so much that they led the Reformation about 500 years ago because the church started teaching that you could be saved by your own merit? What would those guys think about this conversation? Let me read a couple of them. Um, guy named Martin Luther, he was a fan of grace. That was, that was pretty funny, I thought. It's pretty funny, but you guys can be like my teenagers and not laugh at my dad jokes. Um, here's what he wrote. But he does not truly believe if works of love do not follow his faith. Martin Luther, the champion of grace. J.C., not Jesus Christ, John Calvin, he said this. It is impossible to be a believer and not a doer. In his commentary on James, he writes this. This only he means that faith without the evidence of good works is vainly pretended because the fruit ever comes from the living root of a good tree. Identity creates action. So let me do two things I think are really important. Let me be crystal clear about what I'm not saying, and then let me be, let me be crystal clear about what I am saying. Crystal clear about what I'm not saying. I am not talking about perfection in this life. I am not. Because the Apostle Paul himself, who is incredibly godly and followed Jesus, he wrote Romans 7, and he's honest about the struggle with our flesh. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. That is so encouraging that the Apostle Paul wrote that because I am baffled by my actions. Man, I love Jesus, want to obey Jesus, and I get blindsided that after 20 years of following Jesus, I can still be so unloving and unkind and ungracious and selfish. And Paul's saying in this text, like, to be a Christian doesn't mean that you're perfect in this life in your obedience but it means that grace does lead to a desire to grow and to actually follow Jesus, which means repentance, repentance when we turn from him. It's not perfection, but it is repentance. Sanctification, that word that's just about growing to look more like Jesus, growing up into the identity you already have is not a microwave burrito. It's not, it's not cheap, it's not easy, it's not fast. We're going to wrestle with sin. We're going to blow it. It's going to be frustrating. That doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. But if you're wrestling with sin, it's an evidence that you are. If you want to pursue Jesus, and sometimes you do the very thing that you hate, that's an invitation to live out of your identity. Secondly, real fast, this is also not something, it's not something that we can do in our own strength. 
The Bible talks about grace upon grace. The Christian life begins with grace. The middle of the Christian life is all grace, and the end of the Christian life is all grace. God has given us so much grace that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are floating in a sea of grace. The kind of action, the obedience that we're talking about is not something that you white knuckle on your own apart from God. Listen, here's what he's done. He's given you the grace of filling you with the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian who convicts you and teaches you and grows you, comforts you. It's really popular in this cultural moment to have Christians talking like this is like a Facebook thing right now is like, um, hey, all Christians have the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit. So these parts of the Bible that I don't like and don't agree with, they don't apply to me. No, the grace of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit doesn't contradict himself. He teaches you the word of God. And when you blow it, he gives you that feeling like, oh man, that wasn't right. Not to shame you, but to lead you deeper into Jesus. He's given us the grace of community. You can't do this life on your own. You need people that are constantly doing what Hebrews says, stirring you on to love and good deeds. I need my brothers and my sisters to remind me of my identity when my action doesn't line up with who I am in Jesus. He's given us his word to show us what he's like and what he loves. He's given us sacraments like baptism and communion, right? Like today we're gonna celebrate this meal in just a couple of minutes. And it's not just a dead ritual. God's inviting you to receive fresh grace today, to follow Jesus and to love Jesus. He's given us prayer. He's given us so much grace. He wants to walk with you in this life of obedience. So it doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean human effort without the help of God. As Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. So yeah, there's effort and work to follow Jesus, but it's his power working in you. It does mean these two things though. And I'll close with this. If identity informs action, if the root is evidenced by the fruit, two things are true. One, you can't harden your heart to Jesus' teachings and call yourself his disciple. You can't just decide that you're going to have sex out of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman and just be like, well, for me, it's okay. And call yourself a Christian. You can't do it. Scripture's crystal clear about God's demand for chastity. Crystal clear. No, that doesn't mean if you've blown it, if you've sinned, there's not forgiveness, because it's all grace. Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover you, but you can't sin that grace would abound. Paul says, that's insanity. You don't stay in sin. You can't blow off Jesus' teachings about generosity and loving the poor and just be like, yeah, that's not for me. <laughs> I don't have the gift of obedience. <laughs> you don't get to do that. You, you're not allowed to be a racist and a Christian. <laughs> They're incongruent. 
You can't abuse and mistreat your wife and your kids and call yourself a Christian. You can't trade your wife in for somebody else and call yourself a Christian. Here's a hard one. You can't hold bitterness in your heart and refuse to forgive people that have hurt you and call yourself a Christian. I'm not being crazy here. I'm just saying these are things that are black and white clear teachings of our master. And to walk the way of Jesus is to walk the way of discipleship where we follow our master. Imperfectly with a lot of failure and a lot of need for grace and a lot of need for each other. But to be a Christian is to walk with Jesus. It's to go after Jesus. It's to take up a cross and follow Jesus. Secondly, secondly, not only is it true that you can't harden your heart to Jesus' teachings and call yourself his follower, secondly, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to take your formation seriously. Listen, look, look here. I'm, I'm about to wrap up. Listen, though. We are being formed so quickly by our culture. 24-hour news cycle, these phones that we're constantly plugged into. I'm not anti-technology. I'm not saying that we should go find some land in Midwest City and build a compound, churn our own butter, and make all the women wear culottes. Like, that's not arguing for that, right? I like good Wi-Fi. But listen, we've got to wake up and be sober about the fact that our deformation is happening a lot faster than our formation. If you're not serious about spiritual practices that have been historically non-negotiable for disciples of Jesus, prayer and worship, gathering together on the Lord's Day, breaking bread in homes with other believers, prayer, study of Scripture. Like, listen, Christianity is the lamest hobby of all time. You don't play at this. Jesus doesn't give us any wiggle room to play at this. And, and playing at something that's life and death is just foolish. Like, we don't deploy troops in a war and then walk around in flip-flops, wearing Bermuda shorts. They know it's deadly serious. Your spiritual formation, what could be more important than who you are becoming eternally? Philippians chapter two, therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What a, what a beautiful passage full of tension. Work out your salvation. Take your formation deadly serious. Follow the master. But not in your own strength and power, because it's God who's at work in you. If you're here today, like, can we just admit, if this is a hobby, it's not only dumb, but there's better places to be right now. 
Brunch is awesome. Am I the only one that thinks so? Whoever invented, like, hey, champagne and orange juice together, that's healthy. That's a good way to start the day. Like, they're just tempting you into the beauty of brunch. Brunch has bacon, maple syrup. (laughs) If you're here today and not at brunch, it's because God's working in you, and he's asking you to work with him, not against him, for your formation. 